And welcome, you're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners all the way from next door to outer space. And uh, of course, our 0.01% more appreciated podcast listeners, because we know where you are and we can track you with those little chips we put in your hand when you weren't looking. You mean phones? That's the one. Ah. And now to Stefan and Dave for the news. Thanks so much. Uh, so yeah, we've got a we've got a show for you today. Uh, Dave uh, Dave has decided that he's against my themes. Uh, he's anti theme. He thinks that we should just shotgun all of the news in a in whatever variety we feel like. Well, what happens uh, is I prepare I prepare the news, Stefan, and then you uh, place a theme prosthetically onto it, which is is my mind is just disingenuous. I believe that all things in this world are connected, Dave, and that is why I'm an environmentalist. Uh, so uh, we are covering three stories, all in different versions of about about water in the first half, uh, and then we've got uh, a, a interview uh, with uh, with uh, with Apathy is Boring uh, the, in the Rise Network uh, and the Rise Program, sorry, uh, which is a group that comes together and and tries to get young people more civically engaged. Five uh, people. Five people. The biggest interview we've ever done. Mm. Uh, most people possible to fit in this studio. It'll be a packed house, uh, and it'll be a. It's, it's a great. Uh, it's a great program. We'll learn more about that, uh, and then we come back at the end with more depressing news uh, about plastics and the state of waste in this world. But we start off with uh, with water in all of the wrong places. Well, it's just a disturbing phrase. I just don't like that phrase. But uh, first, I will tell you of some a few local events occurring uh, in Toronto. Uh, so the youth climate strike today is happening again at City Hall, starting at 12.30 p.m. On the 3rd of this month, they had over 3,000 students marching down University Avenue. Also at 12.30 today, and which will be joining up with the youth climate strike, there is a divestment rally happening in Toronto at 333 Bay Street to demand that Barclays Bank put an end to fossil fuel investment. So uh, if you're not in Toronto, there are other uh, school climate strikes also happening around the country. And a discussion on carbon pricing, a discussion on carbon pricing and climate solutions uh, featuring Diane Sachs will be held in Toronto at the Miles Nadal Jewish Community Centre, the JCC, at Spadina and Bloor on Thursday, May 30th. A listener gave us the tip on that and we're giving it a shout out. Yeah. Uh, one of the things, if you're not in the in the Toronto area, but you do want to find some local events, uh, there's a whole bunch of actions going on around uh, town halls for the Green New Deal. Uh, so if you if you go if you search uh, Green New Deal town halls, uh, they're happening all over the country uh, for the next couple couple weeks. Uh, there's already been a whole bunch. They've had hundreds and hundreds of people coming out uh, in 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 places you know where we're told that that no environmentalists exist at all, uh, and and yet these events are, are really garnering a lot of attention. So go out and check these things out. It's a way to you know uh, there's there's criticism of the Green New Deal, uh, but uh, in Canada it it's amorphous. It doesn't actually mean any. It doesn't have uh, it has a has a vision, but not uh, some some specifics and these town halls are all about getting people to input their minds and what they could look like uh, so get engaged mm. uh, maybe that's the theme for the show get engaged and that's why we're called the green majority because everybody breathes exactly uh, yeah, no, I just, I mean, I wanted to put, because the that term is being used by multiple groups for slightly different purposes, so I just sort of, I wanted to put a, a propose maybe a green majority definition, um, which was in the, in the U.S., as you identified, there's a specific bill that is being put through Congress. In Canada, we're simply talking about the idea behind it, and so I just wanted to identify what the idea behind it was that is the common factor there, which was simply that, you know, it's it's the basic understanding that we've been 
you know, saying, you know, environment's great, but we can't lose all our jobs. And there's a point now where, hey, it turns out that like propping up that stuff that we thought we were getting all our jobs from is now actually, now we're just paying to do things the bad way. It turns out that now at this point in history, it's actually cheaper to do the right thing. And so what we need to do, though, is that we have an entire system of incentives, an entire political system that's set up to protect these old power structures. And so my definition, I will ask for the approval of Stefan and Dave, <laughs> of the idea of a Green New Deal is just that more general sense of we need to restructure how our politics and our society works to better reflect our reality. Well, yeah, I, I think a, a just transition is sort of where I would start uh, if I was going to define it. You know, we need a, a distinct a transition. So the Green New Deal, in my mind, includes, uh, you know, includes support for indigenous rights, includes supports for 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 workers, uh, and and then ultimately is 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 based around a rapid, rapid, rapid decarbonization. So I think those three things are where I would start with, at the very least, wealth um, redistribution and wealth redistribution, of course, yes. Um, but uh, but yeah, so that so in why do we need this? Is would be a question some might ask uh, if. You you're listening to the show, I think you might know, uh, but uh, we have uh, three stories that all sort of indicate at least uh, why we might. Uh, so back back to after the brief uh, information break to the news about water. Yes. So a couple weeks ago, we mentioned how the glaciers in Greenland were melting from underneath faster than from above and sliding more quickly out into the sea. That kind of instability made it plausible that Greenland that the Greenland ice sheet could collapse in a sudden fashion. We already knew the Arctic was melting. That was just an indication of its potential surprise disappearance in a very short time. Now, Antarctica is officially melting as well, since a lot of the ice there is disappearing faster than it can be replenished, and this process is accelerating. But this process is not the same as what's happening in Greenland. Greenland is teetering on the edge of a brink, whereas Antarctica is dying steadily. The abstract from the new study states, quote, Fluctuations in Antarctic ice sheet elevation and mass occur over, over a variety of timescales owing to changes in snowfall and ice flow. Here, we disentangle these signals by combining 25 years of satellite radar altimeter observations and a regional climate model. While the majority of the ice sheet has remained stable, 24% of West Antarctica is now in a state of dynamical imbalance. Thinning of the Pine Island and Thwaites glacier basins, glacier basins reached 122 meters in places, and their rates of ice loss are now five times greater than at the start of our survey. Damien Carrington writes for The Guardian, quote, A complete loss of the West Antarctic ice sheet would drive global sea levels up by about five meters, drowning coastal cities around the world. The current losses are doubling every decade, and sea level rises are now running at the extreme end of projections made just a few years ago. Without rapid cuts in the carbon emissions driving global warming, the melting and rising sea level will continue for thousands of years. Lead researcher Andy Shepard said, quote, Before we had useful satellite measurements from space, most glaciologists thought the polar ice sheets were pretty isolated from climate change and didn't change rapidly at all. Now we know that is not true. Antarctica isn't currently projected to have much imminent impact on sea levels, but the research indicates that more strange things are occurring in the remotest parts of the globe. Weakened sea ice in Antarctica, for instance, has not recovered at the edge of the Brunt Ice Shelf after severe weather caused a huge chunk of it to collapse in 2016, drowning thousands of emperor penguins. Sorry, that's drowning thousands of baby emperor penguins. 
Wow. Researcher Fretwell said of the event, quote, there's been some sort of regime change. Sea ice that was previously stable and reliable is now just untenable. What's more, we mentioned last week how we recently crossed the threshold of 415 parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere, which hasn't been the case for all of human history. Now it turns out that the last time there was that much heat capturing carbon in the sky, there were actual plants growing on Antarctica. Or as some writers potentially hyperbolize, there were trees at the South Pole. Sea levels back then were also 10 to 20 meters above what they are today. We are therefore currently sitting in a bubble of delayed warming, where the kinds of climactic changes we're experiencing now are not commensurate with what will come when our planet's temperatures catch up with that 415 parts per million. Climate expert Martin Stiegart said, quote, We've got to bring CO2 levels down to 40% of what they are today by 2030, and then to zero by 2050, and then negative after that. That's a massive undertaking, but it's possible. As Jordan Amos put it for the BBC, quote, a key unknown is how much, how soon. How fast could Antarctica retreat in the modern era if the global climate responds to the warming forced by 400 parts per million? Yeah, so there's a, there's a, there's a few notes there. One, uh, I did not expect to hear, uh, to learn about the deaths of thousands of, of, of baby penguins today. Mm. Uh, but, uh, but these are the types of things that I think that we, we often don't even realize that are happening. Um, and, and, and so when you're told about it, you're like, oh, well, like we know that biodiversity loss is happening uh, more generally, and which I think is actually one of the, some of the, the biggest uh, difficulties you face as, in, as environmentalists uh, trying to convey messaging is that the individual stories that, that sort of are, are, are small uh, in nature end up being oversized seemingly, you know, like, like a couple thousand emperor penguins uh um but and then and then the the other story is just kind of boring you know like the idea that 50 percent biodiversity loss which is huge and ridiculous um uh it, it doesn't 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 garner the same sort of feeling of loss as as you'd experience with you know even with news of you know the death of even one baby penguin mm. um or or the or there's a there's a somewhat um controversial scene of walruses falling to their deaths in uh, in the latest, I believe, BBC documentary, Dave Edinburgh's documentary. Um, because people don't want to see that? Uh, well, no, because there's because he sort of directly contributed to climate change and someone who really knows walruses is like, maybe that's not exactly the case. And there's a weird, these are the things environmentalists argue about um, as we lose 50% Edinburgh, of Edinburgh tried to say, these walruses are drowning because of climate change. Others he, were like, maybe not so much. He implied it exactly. There's a if you want to really read up on whether or not walrus, like the the, the but the images are striking. These the point penguins is, did not necessarily die from climate change either. But that ice sheet is that they were on living on is not returning. So that colony is now having to merge with another on a different part of Antarctica. Well, and, and these are the things, right? These these types of these types of these types of ambiguities are, are what makes it difficult to, to do this kind of communication. Um, but what, the more important thing here, of course, is the fact that we are at four hundred and fifteen parts per million. Uh, um, if you're wondering what percent of the population would be not even just affected, uh, but actually underwater, uh, if if you did see those sea level rise that we saw previously, it is about one tenth of the human population. Uh, about 600 million people live uh, within uh, within within. within, within, within 
they live with only 10 meters above them or not. Uh, sorry, above sea level. Less than 10 meters above sea level. 600 million people. And so, it's, and again, as I mentioned, I think, on last week's show, it's not just the sea level rise specifically that's concerning. It's when it surges. So the fact that 600 million people would be actually, their land would be underwater, uh, means that there's a significantly even higher set of the population who would be affected if you hit that kind of rising. Mm. Um, and and the, the last thing I will note uh, is, is uh, we've mentioned this previously, but there's a Hemingway quote um, that I want to talk about, but going bankrupt. Mm. Um, but you know what? I think I'll, I'll save that uh, for the end of the section. Uh, okay. So let's go on to sea levels. So a new study has come out indicating that unchecked global warming could lead to twice as much sea level rise as previously thought, which will displace hundreds of millions of people, ruin farmland, and drown coastal cities. Lead author Jonathan Bamber stated, quote, For 2100, the ice sheet contribution is likely in the range of 7 to 178 centimeters, huge range. But once you add in glaciers and ice caps outside the ice sheets and thermal expansion of the seas, you tip well over 2 meters. This is, of course, in a scenario of 5 degrees Celsius of warming, which is considered unpredictably catastrophic and not terribly likely, provided that we get our act together. Yeah, well, the, the, the thing about uh, the 5 degrees of global warming uh, being somewhat unlikely is, is, unfortunately, once you get past 2, we're really in, within, we don't know. You know, the, the amount of which uh, feedback loops could hit after 2 is, is one of the things that we... Th- the importance of a dramatic action to stop there is just so key. Um, you know, the, the we I think we talked about last week about how methane is being the methane being uh, being stored under uh, permafrost is is one of this one of these feedback loops that could go anywhere. Um, and and to the Mark the uh, the Hemingway quote is is about going bankrupt, um, which which is which was specifically that. Uh, someone in, in in one of his in one of his one of his works, uh, he there's a there's a dialogue between between char- two characters and the question is uh, how did you go bankrupt? Uh, and the answer is two ways: gradually and then suddenly. Uh, it's often misquoted uh, into in, into uh, su- uh, to gradually and then all at once. Um, but but it's in the sun also rises. And I, I think to me this is where especially things like sea especially things like ice sheets and um, and jet streams. Um, uh, are are the two places where I think we can keep seeing the, we'll keep seeing these keep seeing these keep seeing these and, the, and we keep hearing about this like if this fails this happens and these are the types of things that when they fail it will happen quite suddenly um, and so the, we're we're in the gradually phase right now um, but we cannot go bankrupt on ice we desperately need this ice it, it, if we go bankrupt on this ice uh, you know that six hundred million people will be will be will be impacted minimum, uh, almost certainly into the billions of people. Um, Remember, remember last year when people were freaking out about overtaking in 25,000 refugees? (laughs) Yeah. It's like, this is, it would be, you know, a hundred billion, sorry, 1 million, 1 billion people, uh, would be, would be, are within, uh, you know, are within a hundred kilometers, uh, of, of, of the, of the ocean. And so like, this is, this would be a level of, 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 of needing of, of, of repopulation and migration that would just be, is so far beyond it, uh, beyond anything we've ever experienced. And then, you know, what we're going to have, we're going to have a whole bunch of right wingers saying, no, don't let them in. Let's give them money so they can make their own countries better. So they don't come here. Mm-hmm. Oh wait, that's what we were trying to do. Before. <laughs> well, and, and it's like, and that is the, that, that's the, that's the concern. You know, we brought up, talked about this previously about how 
the chances that climate deniers are going to switch into eco-fascists is very high, and these are the types of things that would that would cause that kind of uh, that switch. I think. Um, but but th- while we're also dealing with water being in all of uh, in, in in a whole bunch of places that we uh, like more water that are in places that we would like, um, where climate change also does the exact opposite, uh, and so we switch we shift uh, to the lack of water in with droughts. So after a new study, another new study has found that carbon pollution was already causing droughts as far back as the early 1900s. The abstract states, quote, in the first half of the century, 1900 to 1949, a signal of greenhouse gas force change is robustly detectable. Multiple observational data sets and reconstructions using data from tree rings confirm that human activities were probably affecting the worldwide risk of droughts as early as the beginning of the 20th century. The study used tree rings to detect changes in soil moisture and then compared the soil moisture of the pre-industrial era with that of the 20th century. As Bob Berwin writes for Inside Climate News, quote, In a climate unaltered by greenhouse gases, droughts in different parts of the world would be caused by different influences at different times. In the southwestern United States, for example, the El Nino-La Nina cycle is a big driver of drought, while the Mediterranean region is sensitive to cyclical changes in the Atlantic Ocean's winds and currents. But, in the first half of the 20th century, something different was starting to happen. Soil moisture decreased across all those areas at the same time, a nearly unmistakable sign that it it was driven by rising global temperatures. The tree ring clues notably disappeared from 1950 to 1975, when a huge amount of aerosols were being released into the atmosphere which cooled the planet, but which were also puncturing the ozone layer and damaging human health. Berwin writes, quote, many of the areas expected to dry out as the planet continues to warm are centers of agricultural production, and some could become permanently arid. The authors of the study write, quote, the human consequences of this, particularly drying over large parts of North America and Eurasia, will likely be severe. Yes, I, I agree uh, the author's uh Conclusions that losing a vast percentage of our uh, of our bread basket would uh, would le- would lead to some severe issues. You're an alarmist, Stephen. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. Think uh, think of all the condos that could be built in that space. <laughs> so many, so much room for condos. Um, although density is good, uh, so so maybe maybe that's what we need, but probably not in middle of nowhere Iowa. Um, but you know, and, and, and this is this is so. Um, it's a fascinating study. Honestly, I, I, one of the more interesting parts about the study that I find, which I had not heard before was the con I, I I've known for quite some time that, um, that the aerosols uh, are act as uh, act as a, a way to reduce heat in, in like it's a they are they're a negative influence on on, on global warming, um, but uh, of course they these particular things HFCs or these were CFCs at the time uh, are also uh, are also you know destroying the ozone layer, and and specifically this is why when people talk about. Uh, or when people think about what kind of geoengineering that people would use to to reduce the the the, the warming of the planet, that they first thought is 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 sulfur dioxide, um, because of this particular cooling effect. Now it also causes a whole bunch of other very dangerous things, and so should not be used. But it's interesting to note how it might have taken us longer to recognize the warming patterns because of other feedback loops we were accidentally buying into. You know, because we sort of had a relatively good theory of climate change, well, you know, like even even before we started noticing it happening. And it's interesting that there was that the fact that we were releasing so much uh, aerosols actually sort of 
maybe hate maybe made it take us longer to understand what was currently what was happening because of the because of the impact that it has on on the whole thing. Um, and and really the 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 key thing again this is another example of. Um, the if we went, we would talk a lot about food and agriculture uh, systems uh, from time to time on the show, and one of the reasons why it's the the current system is so dangerous um, is because the the way we have our our, our plants uh, or, or our crops growing right now is specifically trying to ensure that we have the most um, yield possible, which makes them quite uh, which makes them quite arid. Uh, or make, sorry, makes them quite brittle. Um, and which means that any real big fluctuations in temperature or loss of water uh, actually significantly impacts yield much more than if we were trying to sort of keep, keep a much more balanced approach. And so, and so that that difference is 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 really going to be you know it, as we get closer as as the temperatures rise, we are going to have to start figuring out what to do with this um, because. If we're looking at you know the parts that we currently have so many crops being grown uh, as the as the first part that's going to hit by these droughts, uh, we really need to find a way to get hardier crops, uh, and and that is through that is through some sort of more back to the earth, more taking care of the soil, uh, more more paying attention to nitrogen cycles, um, and 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 accepting the idea of of of, of changing the crops and not just going monocultures um, and to to maximize yield, uh, and so. This is it's it's not just a it's not this is not just like a, a hippy dippy like let's be closer to the earth and this is we'll, we'll do this better. It also is actually important for ensuring that the crops themselves are it can survive the types of weather that we're going to be experiencing. Um, and so let's let's figure this out, everyone. That'd be real nice uh, because we desperately need our need our crops and uh, and and it's good it's and know that uh, sulfur dioxide is not going to solve our problems. Those are the two takeaways I have from that part of the show. Uh, we're going to go to music break uh, and then we're going to come back uh, with uh, the Rise Project, um, a full packed studio of five friends. We'll get to know them in half a second, but for right now we're going to music break with Saren. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported. Our goal to reach minimum solvency is to raise $300 a month. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. And we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners, as well as our slightly more appreciated podcast listeners. You can become one of those slightly more appreciated people by going to greenmajority.ca and signing up for the podcast link directly there. With that, Stefan, it is all yours. Thank you so much. That was quite the uh, the expedient uh, intro there. Well done. Um, so uh, we have a packed room today and uh, figured the the only way to really situate yourself where I'm sitting in a room with, with five extra people. So we're just going to go around right now to get everyone's name so you can get a sense of, of who's in the room, starting to my left. I'm Gabby Hensky. I'm Katerina Patsak. I'm Badr Karam Abbas. I'm Rebecca Clausen. I'm Diana Weidai. Amazing. And you are all a part uh, of the RISE project, which is part of Apathy is Boring, uh, which, Becca, you are uh, you are the project coordinator uh, for. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so can you just give our listeners a sense of, of what is the purpose of, of both Apathy is Boring and then the RISE program specifically? Definitely. So Apathy is Boring, we are a national, nonpartisan, nonprofit organization. Um, we try to get young people across Canada more engaged in their communities and in democracy. So that's everything from volunteering in your community, um, 
getting out um, and really participating in, in civic action, uh, voting, and you know knowing how to make your voice heard um, within our democracy. Um, and then from there, RISE is one of our programs. Um, basically, it's running in five cities across Canada, and we aim to bring together diverse groups of young people to co-create community impact projects um, on topics that uh, they are passionate about. So basically, our program will provide resources, trainings, um, opportunities for community connection, and funding um, over a five-month period for each group to build out a project. And we actually are accepting applications right now for our next cohort. So if you're interested in getting involved, head over to www.apathyisboring.com slash rise. Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, one thing I, I, I like about this about this, uh, this project and something that I've consistently ranted about actually over the, over the past 10 years uh, is how often young people are told to get involved and then given no other follow-ups. Uh, like the amount of time someone will yell, get involved at you, and you're like, how? And they're like, I don't know, but be involved. And it's like, what does involved mean? I also don't know, but just be involved. Um, uh, and so the, to, to create space to actually help uh, people get involved, I think is so important. Um, and especially especially when you, you know, don't have the experience of, of what involved even means. You know, it's an amorphous phrase. Um, but I'm, I'm curious about sort of your uh, your thoughts on the importance of getting, you know, getting young people involved in civic engagement uh, and, and how you do it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> I think for us, uh, kind of just just exactly what you just said, like young people are told to get involved, but not really given avenues. Um, and really, like we're a huge part of the population. Uh, there's, you know, you just go on, on any social media um, and you'll see like young people sharing so many things. We're passionate about so many things, um, but often don't know how to actually uh, take that into action um, and do something about it. So that's kind of what Apathy is Boring is here to do. Um, we don't believe that young people don't care. Kind of the opposite. We believe young people care so much about what's going on in our communities and our country as a whole. And so we're just trying to give um, avenues for young people to, to really make change. Again, whether that's through programs like RISE, where you can make change more at the community level amongst your peers and networks um, or taking it um, kind of to the next step within democracy, getting out to vote, um, having your voice heard politically and taking action in that way. Amazing. Um, and so and so from here, we'll, we'll pivot to the rest of the people in the room uh, who are all participants of uh, this five-month cohort. And um, and so I guess I'll start with the, the most sort of wide open question I can come up with, with it, which is, uh, what's the project you've taken on? So uh, the project that um, we've taken on is um, is based around the topic of the environment. And so for every cohort, there's a different theme or topic. And this one is the environment. And the really amazing thing about this program is that uh, we as a cohort, um, all the ambassadors had the c ability uh, to decide around what kind of project we wanted to create. Um, and then we spent five months creating the project. Um, so. As a group, we were really passionate about the environment, but also how it looks locally, because it's so easy to say globally, this is what's happening, this is how people are being affected. We wanted to know what environmental injustice looks like in Toronto. And we had a few one-off um, understanding uh, answers, but we wanted to really explore it in depth. So we decided to take a two-part approach to it. Um, so what we did was we held a workshop at Sketch Arts, which is an amazing nonprofit um, studio for youth. Go check them out. They're really great. Um, and so we had a full house with uh, a lot of youth. And we spent the day 
the first portion of the workshop learning about environmental injustice um, from two nonprofits that are working in Toronto and in Ontario on what environmental injustice looks like. Um, and we spent the rest of the day creating art that reflected that. And the second portion of that project is uh, we're going to be displaying the art that we created in the workshop um, at the Kensington Market Art Fair. Please come by our booth. We have some really, really amazing um, art pieces to display. We actually had uh, submissions from youth artists um, with environmental art pieces, and we also have a documentary, which is incredible. And so we're going to have a few other things as a surprise. Um, so you have to come by and check it out. And one of the really cool things is we're going to have an interactive art mural so everybody can participate and um, make a promise of what they're going to do. Amazing. Um, and so so you've started, uh, obviously, the, the program sort of gives you sort of a wide range of environment, uh, but then you as a group decided to sort of focus in on environmental injustice specifically. Uh, and so I'm just curious, why did you, why did, why would that specifically? What, what about environmental justice do you feel is so, so important to address? Well, I feel a big part of it was framing, because when we think of climate change, we think, oh my God, it's a huge problem, but how does it affect us? And the way that this has been portrayed over the past couple of years is, oh my God, look at these polar bears, look at this iceberg that's going to melt. So um, that wasn't really effective and people didn't really care about it. But when you think about what's really happening, it affects people. And obviously, things like racism and sexism, we rightly get furious about. So when you attach an environmental aspect to that, it really shows the scale of what's going on and how different people are affected. Um, so when you think of it that way, it draws people in because, it, because it's something that they care about. Um, and also there's something unique about the environment in that it's sort of something out of our control. So if you have some communities that are suffering from lower air quality, lower water quality, and then they start getting diseases and things like that, that's something that we no longer have control over. So 30, 40, 50 years down the line, um, if we, like if things get better for people, we still can't un, we still can't get rid of those diseases, you know what I mean? So it's something that's really important because we can't control it. And that's sort of what we were trying to raise awareness about with environmental injustice. So, yeah. Amazing, and and so you've, you've, you've sort of, you took that took that sort of wider theme and that sort of the that obviously the the importance of of the overwhelming injustice that 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 exists within the environmental field, mm -hmm. um, uh, and then and then decided to, to not just take that but then to uh, of course you, you sort of spoke to how do we message this correctly how do we get people to, to care um, and 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 clearly you've decided to, that art is the is the, the is the way um, so here's why did you choose why art uh, and what's what about that medium and uh, to to communicate this kind of message. What was so important about that? Because we think um, art is a language that everyone speaks, and you don't have to know the same language to communicate the issue. And you don't need fancy data or fancy words to communicate the issue. And as an artist myself, art is a, is a way for me to channel my emotions. And when people are emotionally connected, so they're, they, they'll feel more connected to the issue, and they'll have more care about the issue, no matter what the issue is. So I think art is an amazing tool that we can use to uh, give people a, um, the issue in a visual way and the emotional way. So that's why we chose art as our tool. 
Amazing. Um, and I'm going to do, do a quick follow-up with you specifically because yeah. I know that you have created a an absolutely because uh, uh, people often will hear art and not fully understand uh, the ways in which that could be communicated or the ways you might be able to use uh, art uh, in this. And so you have a, you have a piece, uh, a, a dress. Uh, could you describe the dress that you've made? Yeah, thank you. Um, so for a Zero Waste Fashion Show uh, last year at uni, we I made a piece that is made out of uh, a lot of plastic bags I collected from people. And then I used um, staples to staple them together. And then I used a bubble wrap to as a um, top piece and also like a veil, sort of. So it's supposed to stand for how we're drowning in a plastic culture and we're kind of like marrying into this um, disposable lifestyle. And then, but when you finish with it, it's nowhere to go and it's, it's going to uh, exist for the eternity. So I think that piece for me is my way of speaking up for our people and speaking up how we shouldn't like continue on to be marrying to this plastic-based culture and consumerism. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's, uh, what I love about that is actually that ties very well into our last section of the show, which is all about plastics and waste. So tune in or keep tuning in as we carry on. But uh, to get back uh, to uh, to your sort of project and uh, and the work that you've done, uh, you highlighted earlier that, that you found it quite important to connect uh, with local organizations uh, who are working directly on these issues. Uh, and so I'm curious, why did you think that was important? Because um, this way we are connecting people in our city and many change makers that already have successful programs and projects so we we do like a collaboration and we're like lifting each other up and creating like this network of active citizens in Toronto and raising awareness for like more people amazing and uh, which uh, who did you connect with what were your what were your who did you who did you find out there who should people know about so we had our workshop at sketch arts that's already an organization that's a partner of Apathy is Boring. We also have Vibe Arts as a partner. Um, we One of our facilitators was Kevin Wong from the Chemical Valley Project. And we also had Cheyenne Sundance from Sundance Harvest. Amazing. And, and uh, actually, if you if you go back about a year and a half-ish, I think, on this show, you can hear an entire hour-long interview of Dave and Kevin Wong, actually. Um, so if you ever check that out, uh, plug for previous episodes of the show, which are all available on our website, agreementjoy.ca. Um, but uh, focusing back uh, on, on the work you're doing, um, the question we always want to make sure that people uh, get asked when we're working here is, um, so people have now heard your project. They want to know more. Uh, get, we are, the, the show is, is casted, actually, across, across Canada. Uh, and so some folks may not be able to come to Pedestrian Sunday on Sunday. Uh, so how can they find out about you if they if they can't physically be there? Which again is definitely the best way to appreciate it. But uh, how else can they can they support you? Um, well, first of all, they can follow our Instagram to stay up to date with everything that's happening, even if they can't come to Pedestrian Sunday, even though coming would be obviously the best choice. <laughs> um, and also you can, um, so applications for the ambassador role is actually open right now. So people across Canada, I think it's uh, Toronto, Montreal, uh, Vancouver, Ottawa, and Edmonton. Applications are open in all those cities. So if you want to work on a project like the one that we're that we're working on right now, um, you can apply for a position. Hopefully, you'll join us, or not us, but the Apathy is Boring family. Right. Yes. Um, There's also a program that is getting young people out to vote, and I can't uh, stress this enough. 
that your opinion and your voice matters and young people have such a low voter turnout and because we care about so many issues and there's so many different things that affect us we can't allow everybody else to have a say and then complain about things after the fact so we have to show up and vote because there is a federal election coming up and apathy is boring is running a lot of uh, voting programs and has a lot of information on voting so please check that out and I think people sometimes forget that having the right to vote is a privilege and for some people like I'm, I'm an international student so back home we don't get the right to vote so here I see people taking it for granted so I encourage people to really get out and vote to use your voices yeah fantastic and uh, I, I know you have a you have a name and a hashtag so I want to give you a chance to say that oh name is Absis, oh, ASB Rise Anders, that's underscore T-O, and uh, our hashtag is Sustainable Arts. Amazing. Uh, and that's a six, oh, and then I-X. Yeah. Yes, not an S, uh, because that would be easy to make, easy mistake to make. Um, okay, well, thank you all so much uh, for being here uh, and, and for letting us know your program. Um, obviously, uh, if you're a youth, get involved and check out Apathy is Boring. Uh, if you're a person in the relative city, uh, go uh, go check out Pedestrian Sunday in Toronto um, on this Sunday, which would be, again, if you're listening to the podcast, you might have missed it, but it was 26th, uh, May 26th, uh, come that to that day. And then, of course, uh, to echo to echo uh, the rest of the people, uh, go vote in uh, in the federal election that's upcoming. Um, thank you all so much for being here, uh, and we'll we'll throw to our music break. And Stephen, of course, it would be remiss not to let people know that the best way to get written down things from an audio program is to get it off the website, which you can go to. You're going to find those links more and the hashtag and links to the guests' uh, websites at greenmajority.ca. And we'll be right back. We are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners. And Stefan, that is the third time I got through that pretty fast without stumbling today. Yeah, well done. We're really nailing it today. Yeah. Uh-huh. When I have only one job, I totally nail it. <laughs> uh, well, uh, good news to Dave. Uh, I've come up with a new theme uh, for the show. Your uh, themes are... Um they're burdening me psychologically and spiritually. Well, that's in part the goal. Uh, so the new theme uh, is drowning in plastic uh, because of uh, not only, obviously, uh, the, the wonderful uh, art dress, which you can see, I believe, if you're on Pedestrian Sunday. I believe the dress will be there if you show up. Um, dress what? Uh, the, the dress that was referenced in the last interview. I was, I was out of the room, Stefan. Well, exactly. Um, <laughs> is it made of plastic? Or? Yes, it's made okay, of plastic. Okay. It's about, it's, it, the whole thing was about how we are, we are inundated <laughs> by plastic, and that is why she made the dress. That was the, that was the interview we just conducted. Um, so uh, moving towards the plastic conversation, uh, we, have some, we have a whole bunch of notes about waste and plastic, so let's go there. So... After nearly two weeks of negotiations, 187 countries agreed last week to treat plastic waste as a form of hazardous waste uh, in an update to the 1989 Ball Convention. It's uh, spelt basil or basil. It's pronounced ball. All right. Uh, Under the legally binding agreement, countries must monitor their exports of plastic waste uh, with the intention of sharply reducing such waste in general and specifically reducing the amount of plastics being dumped in the global south. Sarah Bosch, a science advisor for the NGO umbrella group International Pollutants Elimination Network, or IPEN, says that, quote, 
For far too long, developed countries like the U.S. and Canada have been exporting their mixed toxic plastic wastes to developing Asian countries, claiming it would be recycled in the receiving country. Instead, much of this contaminated mixed waste cannot be recycled and is instead dumped or burned or finds its way into the ocean. With an increasing number of Asian countries now banning imports of plastic waste, the agreement is also help is also meant to help many African nations that could become these rich countries' new dumping grounds. The United States, however, the number one plastics exporter in the world, refused to sign the agreement. As a result, it will be banned from exporting plastic waste to non-OECD countries who are a part of the Ball Convention. German Environment Minister Svenja Schulz called the stricter restrictions, quote, a big step forward uh, and an effective instrument in fighting the increasing amount of waste in the ocean. Other amendments are designed to push countries to develop less toxic and more recyclable packaging options. For instance, the packaging industry news company Packing Insights is reporting that earlier this year, two leading packaging companies developed recyclable versions of the stand-up pouch, a notoriously hard-to-recycle type of packaging. The agreement comes as a new report from the Center for, Inter Center for International Environmental Law has for the first time tracked the carbon footprint of plastic from cradle to grave. The report argues that, our, that at our current and growing levels of emissions from the, plastic life, from, from the plastic life cycle alone are enough to threaten our 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold. By the end of 2015, 8.3 billion tons of plastic had been manufactured globally, and two-thirds of that, or 5.5 billion tons, have been released into the environment. Recently, 414 million pieces of plastic were found on a remote group of islands in the Indian Ocean, including 977,000 shoes and 373,000 toothbrushes. Researcher Annette Finger said, quote, The scale of the problem means cleaning up our oceans is currently not possible, and cleaning beaches once they are polluted with plastic is time-consuming, costly, and needs to be reg regularly repeated as thousands of new pieces of plastic wash up each day. Yeah, and one of the, the, the more frustrating uh, elements of this particular, uh, these particular issues, especially around packaging, uh, is, is that we've seen effective policies that, that dramatically reduce packaging. You know, if you force the people who are creating the packaging or creating the products to receive them back and recycle them themselves, they will find ways to avoid doing this. Um, and then that they will find ways to reduce their packaging, reduce the reliance on plastic. And it's quite literally because they're able to just throw it away and not be, deal with it, or because they're not being charged for all the plastic that they're creating uh, and leaving in the oceans, that they continue to do this. If you ever wonder why you get a gigantic box of uh, Amazon box just filled with weird plastic poofs, as the referenced here, um, uh, it's because they are not being charged for the inclusion of those plastic poofs or the, to do them afterwards. It's the cheapest way to pile it now at this point. Um, and so they're they're the like it's a frustrating thing because yes, that it wouldn't be a cure all for sure, but there are some very simple uh, ways to sort of push. 
us closer to uh, to a more circular uh, experience with these types of plastics. Um, you know, we had a, we had our uh, Kim D'Oliveira was on uh, to talk about the, as our sort of resident expert on on, on circular economy stuff, and she's hoping to come back in June. Uh, and one of the things here is these are the types of policies that actually push us to closer to that, and we desperately, desperately need this. Um, uh, but there's more plastic news, so let's keep going on. So, um, meanwhile, two leagues under the sea, an explorer by the name of Victor Vescovo has just completed the deepest manned sea dive ever, sinking for four hours into the Mariana Trench in the Pacific Ocean. And there, nearly 11,000 meters underwater, in the deepest place on Earth, he found four new species of deep-sea critters, as well as a single-use plastic bag and some candy wrappers. Vescovo mused, quote, Going to the extremes, I believe, is a natural inclination of man. His vessel was named the Limiting Factor. Wow. Um, sounds quite like quite the man. Um, the like this is just this is one of those things where it's just sort of the level of uh, of impact. Um, I, I often find that the most common response, uh, uh, most common be- held, commonly held belief uh, by climate change deniers and, and folks who just sort of decide that the environment can just solve itself are these people who grew up in a world which the idea that humans could impact the world on such scale is, was, was impossible. And, and to me, there's no greater example. Uh, of of the fa- of the wide reaching nature of human waste, uh, than at the fact that at the bottom of the Marianas Trench, um, that you can find not the uh, bottom, the deepest that humans have gone. All right, fine. So maybe so. <laughs> fair enough. Uh, although the fact that there's multiple things there, uh, maybe I'm going to take a wild guess and say there's probably something at the bottom. Um, but but fine. The but the fact is that you know, not only single use plastic bags and but candy wrappers, like it's just you know these are. These are toxins that are being implemented in, in the farthest reaching places. Um, and, and it's just, it's, it's proof to me about that we are, you know, this is the Anthropocene. You, if you, we are, we, the humans are the main dominating factor about whether or not life can exist on this planet. And, and if we continue to bury it in plastic, we won't survive either. Well, I just mentioned uh, nearly a million shoes having washed up on a remote island. Yes, like the like when we're all running away from something. Um, it's a shoe joke. Uh, but uh, <laughs> speaking of running away from things, like your responsibilities, let's move on to how Canada has uh, is running away from its own. No, we were, we're confronting it, Stefan. The story is about confronting it. Well, it, it, we've ran away for six years. Okay, so uh, Canada has agreed now to reclaim its 69 shipping containers filled with household garbage back from the Philippines that were mislabeled as recyclable plastic waste, ending a six-year dispute over which President Rodrigo Duterte at one point threatened to declare war on Canada, stating, quote, I will declare war against them. I will advise Canada that your garbage is on the way. Prepare a grand reception. Eat it if you want to. Your garbage is coming home. The containers, shipped between 2013 and 2014, will be brought back to Canada on Ottawa's dime. The agreement represents a small sign of hope for globally southern countries inundated with Western garbage, especially since China's import ban of plastic waste was put in effect at the beginning of 2018, as we've mentioned before. 
Since then, countries like Malaysia, Vietnam, and the Philippines have taken in staggering amounts of plastic waste and are struggling to crack down on illegal dumping and enforce safe recycling practices. Despite the fact that ocean pollution is rising exponentially in that part of the globe, it is hard to miss the irony of Trump's claim in 2015 that Asia is polluting the oceans when most of that waste is produced in countries like the U.S., and since they refused, just refused to sign the new plastics convention. Yeah, and I think there's a the the overarching um, theme here a little bit um, is is just how how much the previous models we've built uh, to address uh, waste have failed. You know the the reduce re, the reduce reuse recycle uh, has become almost entirely recycle, um, and 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 then we don't recycle them. Uh, or, or they we create these plastics that become unrecyclable relatively quickly, and then we have to deal with them again, right? And then use a definition of recycle that just means use it one more time a little bit and then throw it away. Well, exactly, yeah. Like, man, the amount of which you get food grade plastic recycled into into pellets that become one other thing, and at that point they're no longer recyclable, um, is is overwhelming. Um, and so uh, it's it's these types of stories and these types of things uh, that that speak, I think, a lot to when we're thinking about, to sort of actually circle back to the very beginning of the show, um, uh, when we're talking about the Green New Deal and sort of what that looks like. There's, there's, a, there's an interesting sort of, there's a, there's a critique uh, from the, from, I think, from the, from the, from the eco-socialist environmental left uh, on versions of the Green New Deal. Now, again, it's, it's quite amorphous, and so I, I'm not sure whether or not, like, I think, the, I think the proponents, the main proponents of the Green New Deal would not uh, ascribe to trying to use this I think calling it a capitalist solution to the problem is is a bit disingenuous. Um, but one of the one of the main critiques is the amount of say mining in the global south that will be required um, and and extra waste that will be caused to create this type of transition. And I think that that is why uh, if when we talk about a green new deal, when we talk about uh, a societal shift, a big part of it has to be about how to do these things better, how to re- massively reduce the amount of plastics we create, uh, how to ensure and for enforce uh, more circular economies within these contexts. Uh, Especially when you're thinking about uh, rare metals, you know, and and then if you want to talk about some of the really dangerous recycling processes, um, the recycling of electronics is 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 a truly toxic environment. Uh, I don't mean toxic environment as in like how we think of it as like it's like mean or or, or dangerous uh, mentally. I mean there are toxins that are will 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 poison you, um, and and those two are getting shipped off into to and put put on the put on the burden um, of 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 and the environmental injustice actually if we're carrying on that theme as well. The the conversation around environmental injustice centers I think and must center at least in part how the Green New Deal affects these people, the people who are on the front lines of re- doing, envi- doing recycling of these, um, uh, of, these, of these rare earth metals, the people who are mining these rare earth metals. Um, and, and we have to find a way to, as a part of the you know, batch of legislation that a Green New Deal might include, to reduce the harm as much as possible, uh, eliminate it you know, ideally, of course, and, and also start re- reusing these things. Like start creating, you can create 
uh, different goods that are easier to re recycle or harder to recycle. Um, and, you know, uh, many tech giants are going the opposite way. Many tech giants are sort of going against the right to repair um, the movement, um, especially, you know, Apple is one of the perhaps the worst offenders on this. Uh, they've consistently made it harder and harder to repair their to repair their products uh, unless you go to a, you know, you go back to them and because they've soldered things together. Which is just hideous in my opinion. It's yes. like we've created this object that everyone feels they need to use. And you can't fix it yourself. Yeah, and and yeah, a, a total a total re yeah, rejection of the ability to actually to keep these things going by yourself and and reliance then back on them and then they're just trying to sell you the next thing right they're not even they're not really going to try that hard to actually repair this next laptop they're actually just going to force you to buy another laptop uh, as, as often as they can um, and so all of these things together comes back to me to this this question of like we have to find a way we have to move towards a more a more um, equitable distribution of, of wealth, as well as more distribution of, of harm uh, of the things that we use every day, the, the technology and, and plastics, all of this has to be pushed into the sphere of a more circular experience, uh, because we are drowning in plastic. And things like the right to repair and making things more durable and not going to become obsolete in a few years and not going to break down is a form is like wealth redistribution, but it's not so much literally taking cash, it makes everybody richer. But it's not uh, in the it's not uh, the same type of you know communism that people think of a wealth redistribution. Right. As long as you're yeah. As long as you can ensure that people can can, can get can afford the, the sort of first product, the ability to repair, especially especially the ability to repair. Like man, that's that is so huge. Um, and especially with tech, you know, if you can, and like there's people out there who can repair these things if they're made to be even sort of repairable. Uh, and especially with phones, and uh, they're, they're probably the worst. Uh, but laptops, especially within Apple, have gotten progressively harder. And so check out the right to repair movement because because it, it really is quite important. We do have one last story uh, back to a little a little combination actually of plastics and fashion. Um, so so that dress uh, is uh, is right in right on cue. A new report released jointly by Global Fashion Agenda, Sustainable Apparel Coalition, and Boston Consulting Group found that the process of improving sustainability in the fashion industry appears to be stalling. The industry has come under pressure in recent years to change its practices since it generates one-fifth of global water pollution, one-third of ocean-borne microplastics, and more greenhouse gas emissions than all international flights and maritime shipping combined. While many companies have taken steps to improve their ecological footprint, the report concludes that the pace of change is in fact slowing, which is alarming since almost nothing has happened thus far. Indeed, the report states that 40% of fashion companies have taken no steps whatsoever to improve sustainability. The report also found that among the five countries surveyed, the US, the UK, France, China, and Brazil, 75% of consumers viewed sustainability as extremely or very important, while more than a third of consumers reported having already switched away from a preferred brand to one that credibly stands for positive environmental and or social practices. But when asked about the most important factor in making a purchase, only 7% of consumers chose sustainability over quality, price, and looking successful. 
looking successful. Um, you gotta look successful. You gotta look successful. That's what society tells us. Um, uh, and this is, man, there, we, we've had shows before all about fashion. Uh, and I remember, I just, I'll, I'll leave us with one thought because we are running out of the time, um, which is I remember asking a uh, friend of the show, Peggy Sue Deven, who uh, runs Peggy Sue Collections, which is a sustainable uh, uh, fashion brand. Uh, if I, as, as a consumer, uh, uh, if I could find a sustainable clothing, if I could buy truly sustainable clothing in, in the city, um, and at this, and, and the moment she was she was going on, she was, she was like, no. Um, you know, the, the process is so broken right now um, that it's very difficult. Um, you know, you can buy secondhand and there are certainly better and worse options here. Um, but the man does a fashion industry need to have a huge shift. Um, and again, in the fashion industry too, I think it's very important to highlight the right to repair. You know, how, how hard is it? How many people have lost the ability to sew? How many people have lost the ability to patch up their clothing? Um, and the importance of that to maintain their, to maintain their ability to look successful uh, while also not polluting the, the oceans with microplastics. Um, so with all of that, uh, thank That'll you so much for listening. Yeah, uh, we are we are headed to uh, we're headed to our music break or our final uh, not music break the our theme song our end theme song of the show. Uh, take it away, Sarah. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a good green week. Take care. <laughs>